By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Nick Samuels, host of Muniland. And I'm Danielle Reed, host of Focus on Finance. Today, with the New York International Auto Show happening just a few miles from Moody's offices, we have a special joint episode of the Moody's Talks podcast focusing on electric vehicles. We'll bring together speakers from Muniland, Focus on Finance, and Behind the Bonds. Think of it as Moody's Car Talk. That's right. And governments all over the world are taking actions to lower greenhouse gas emissions. One result is that sales of electric vehicles, or EVs, have accelerated. Danielle will talk to Matthias Heck from Moody's Corporate Finance Group about how quickly EV sales are growing and how high Moody's thinks they'll be in a decade. Right. And the short answer is the percentage of new vehicle sales that are EVs will be a whole lot higher in 10 to 12 years. And that's positive for EV manufacturers, but the growth is going to have some unintended consequences for certain areas of finance, like auto insurance and auto financing. So I'll also be talking to Moody's insurance team analyst, Jasper Cooper, about how auto insurers are going to navigate this new world of many more EVs, and to finance companies analyst, Ina Bodek, about the effects of EV growth on the auto financing subsidiaries of automakers. Higher EV sales also will eventually mean lower state gas tax revenue. Moody's analyst Ted Hampton will join me in the second half of the program to tell us all about that and why the state highway revenue bonds we rate will be able to withstand the drop in that revenue. But first, Matthias Heck is going to join to talk about how much EV growth the world is going to see. Matthias, hi. Thanks so much for joining. Hi, Danielle. So, Matthias, just how high are EV sales going to be globally in a decade or so from now? Or I think, as you call them, battery electric vehicles or BEVs. Yes, that's right. We expect BEVs to represent around one third of global light vehicle sales by 2030 and nearly half by 2035. This is actually a faster uptake than we had previously forecast because of tighter environmental regulations and more aggressive electrification targets from automakers. So that's the share of new vehicle sales, right? That's right. Okay, you mentioned tighter environmental regulations. What are the regional policy goals from governments that are contributing to that more aggressive timeline for EVs to dominate the mix of new vehicles sold? I know the EU had said, I think all new vehicle sales should be EVs by 2035. Yeah, that's actually right. In February, the EU Parliament approved a plan for all new vehicles to be zero emission from 2035. That plan was slightly modified in March to allow also the sale of cars that exclusively use so-called e-fuels. We expect that 100% of new vehicles in the EU will be alternative fueled by 2035, and most of those will be BEVs. We expect around 85 to 90%. Okay, and what about other regions? China is by far the largest market for electric vehicles right now because of governmental regulations relating to fuel efficiency that encourages automakers to produce them, and also financial incentives and policy support that encourage consumer adoption. But the speed at which the share of electric vehicles and other alternative fuel vehicles increases 
will slow down over time, so, so other regions will catch up. In 2022, new energy vehicles, which is the Chinese government defined as battery electric vehicles, plug-in hybrids and fuel cell vehicles, reached about 25% of auto sales in China. That will surpass 50% by 2035. And where I am in the U.S. here, how does the U.S. stack up? Yeah, in the U.S., because of growing consumer interest and also subsidies made available by the legislation passed during the Biden administration, we expect BEVs to account for 35 to 40% of total light vehicle sales by 2030, up from just 5% in 2022. Combined with plug-in hybrid electric vehicles and other hybrids, we see alternative fuel vehicles representing just over half of U.S. total light vehicle sales by 2030, up from just 13% in 2022. Matthias, thank you so much. Now, the rapid growth in EV sales is going to have consequences for various types of financial institutions, including auto finance captives. Those are the subsidiaries of automakers that provide financing to the automakers' customers to help them buy or lease vehicles. Now, by the way, for listeners interested in the impact of EVs on asset-backed securities backed by auto loans and leases, you can hear all about that on the March 30 episode of Moody's Talks Securitization Spotlight. But in terms of what the growth in EVs means for the U.S. auto finance captives, Ina Bodek is here with us to tell us about that. Ina, thanks for joining. Thanks, Danielle. Glad to be here. You know, when I read your report about how EVs are changing the landscape for U.S. auto finance captives, it seemed like a couple of things were happening at once. On the one hand, the riskier part of the captive's financing is going to grow, and that's leases to consumers for new electric vehicles. And then at the other end of the spectrum, the least risky part of the auto finance captive's business is going to get smaller, and that would be dealership financing. Um, did I get that about right? That's about right, yes. Okay, thanks. So uh, starting with the first point, leases to consumers for new electric vehicles are going to become a bigger share of auto captives business. Why is that? And also, why is that business riskier than dealership financing? Well, as for why there will be more leases, leases will be more attractive than loans for consumers because for one, EVs are overall more expensive than internal combustion engine vehicles, and the monthly payments for leasing an EV will be lower than the payments on the loan to buy one would be, because lease payments are typically lower than loan payments. For example, the monthly lease payment on an F-150 was $560, and the monthly loan payment was $896 in the fourth quarter of last year. And also, consumers are likely going to prefer not to buy new electric cars until the technology supporting infrastructure and prices for used alternative fuel vehicles are all more firmly established. And finally, because EVs are still a fairly new market, the auto finance captives are very likely going to reinstate high lease incentives to get more market share and brand loyalty. There is another product currently being offered in the market called a balloon loan for electric vehicles, which gives flexibility to return the vehicle when the balloon payment is due. These loans have different structures. Drivers can return the vehicle, refinance it, or pay, pay off the outstanding balance. Right. So 
all of that kind of catering to consumers, I guess, is going to support an acceleration in consumer leases for EVs. That makes sense. So why are leases for new cars a riskier part of the auto finance captives business? It's because when other lenders provide leasing products, they take on the residual value risk of the vehicle. That's the value of the vehicle after the lease term is up, when the consumer is allowed to return the vehicle. If the value of the vehicle is lower relative to the company's expectations, the auto finance captive is going to have to sell the vehicle in the used car market at a loss. So that's the residual value risk. And it could be higher for EVs than for regular internal combustion engine vehicles because the price of EVs is higher to start with. And also because the battery technology is changing quickly and the batteries are what really distinguishes EVs from other types of vehicles. But it can take years to fully develop and test new battery innovations with a lot of potential for reputational damage if a product underperforms or fails. And even with innovation, the travel range of BEVs in the U.S. has remained fairly consistent over the last five years. For example, the range of Tesla's Model 3 has improved by 48 miles to 358 miles since the end of 2018. This is one of the key mitigating factors to the residual value risk. Okay, so none of this is necessarily going to happen overnight or even in a couple of years. But the point is, if you lease an EV now and if before your lease is up, there is a major leap forward in battery capacity and your car doesn't have the new type of battery, then the value could go down a lot. Okay, and now switching gears. Sorry, can't help but insert a few car puns here. Let's talk about why dealership financing is going to become a smaller part of auto finance captives business and why dealership financing is lower risk. Sure, I'll start with how dealership financing works. And along the way, you'll see why it's less risky than financing new car leases. So the dealership financing is when the captives actually provide short-term financing directly to the auto dealerships to help them fund the inventory the dealerships then sell to consumers. So the financing is short-term, which itself is less risky than financing leases. Secondly, the dealers are highly motivated to sell the inventory and pay down the finance. And lastly, unlike with leases, there is no residual value risk to the auto finance captives. Got it. So why does the fact that EV sales are taking off mean there will be less dealership financing? Good question. Buyers of electric vehicles tend to be more tech-savvy consumers who prefer to shop online is the main reason. Because of that, we believe the need to finance inventory will gradually decline. Take Ford Credit, for example, which is Ford's auto finance captive. Ford Credit has historically had a large dealership financing portfolio. But Ford is already working on a new Model E dealer program expected to launch in January of next year. Model E is the Ford segment that deals with electric vehicles. And that program has almost no inventory financing. The behavior of the consumer in the long term is less clear, however, because an average consumer might still have some preference to shop directly at dealerships. Ina, thank you so much for your insights. 
And there is one more financial institution sector that's going to have to make adjustments as EV sales grow, and that's insurance. Here with us now in New York is Jasper Cooper from Moody's Insurance Team. Jasper, hi. Welcome. Hi, Danielle. Glad to be here. So, Jasper, what's the main effect on U.S. auto insurers from the growth in EVs? So the main effect is going to be higher repair costs that insurers are going to have to cover when there's an accident. Before I explain why that is, though, I should say that right now, because EVs are such a small percentage of cars on the road in the U.S., this isn't really moving the needle in terms of insurer costs today. Okay, but as EVs become a bigger share of new car sales, and after that, a bigger share of all the cars on the road in total, maybe then it'll have more of an impact? Right. So the reason why EVs are more expensive to repair is one, they have more expensive components, especially the batteries, and two, they're more likely than regular internal combustion engine vehicles, or ICE vehicles, to need a full replacement once they're in a collision. As Ina mentioned, the replacement values for EVs are generally higher than for ICE vehicles because their retail values are higher. Right. Okay. I I think in the U.S., EVs are mostly in the luxury category right now. Mostly, but that's starting to change. But yes, the average value of a new EV in the U.S. today is around $60,000 compared to less than $50,000 for the average ICE vehicle. So how will insurers respond? Well, they'll have to raise prices. Some insurers are already taking into account EVs' higher repair costs for collision coverage in their pricing plans. So that's for damage to a driver's own vehicle. And what happens when drivers hit an EV, though? I mean, that's um, generally under liability coverage, correct? Yeah, exactly. So as the share of EVs in the U.S. fleet increases, insurers will also need to proactively incorporate the changing fleet composition into the liability portion of their pricing plans, which covers damage to third-party vehicles. Smaller, maybe regional auto insurers in particular will need to improve their pricing sophistication to address this challenge. Jasper, thanks so much. And that is it for the Focus on Finance and Behind the Bonds portion of the episode. Nick Samuels of the Muniland podcast is now merging on here for the second half, where he'll be interviewing Moody's analyst Ted Hampton about the impact of EVs on U.S. state highway bonds. Thanks, Danielle. Ted, welcome back to Muniland. Great to be here, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, so we recently bought an EV. The car is really cool. It's zero emissions. We even installed a home charger. That makes topping off the car very easy. But it also means that we don't go to the gas station anymore. And there's a public finance angle there, right, Ted? We rate $38 billion of state highway revenue bonds to which states have pledged gas taxes to pay debt service. So as electric vehicles grow to an increasingly larger share of cars on the road, gas taxes are going to decline. So my question to you is, what will states do and what does that mean for the bonds we rate? Well, first of all, Nick, congratulations to you and your spouse on your new car. That sounds like a lot of fun. And you guys are helping the environment. So that's all great. It's true that there are 38 billion of state highway revenue bonds that we rate. And obviously, to the extent that these bonds are paid from gasoline tax revenue, there's an issue there if everyone follows in your footsteps and and starts driving a Tesla or some other electronic vehicle, electric vehicle that doesn't require them to buy gasoline anymore. So so what will states do? I think the good news is that most of the bonds we rate have very high coverage. In other words, the current ratio of pledged highway revenue to debt service is high. So they can accommodate a drop-off 
in the pledge revenue like gasoline and diesel fuel tax revenue. On the other hand, we, we don't really know how fast that's going to play out. So that's one thing we're trying to put into context here. The other thing to bear in mind is not all of these bonds, of course, are the same. There are a few that are backed solely by motor fuel tax revenue, and then most of them are backed by a combination of things that can also include uh, registration fees, license fees, sales and use taxes, anything that the state governments have decided to allocate to these bonds over time. All right. Can you give us a few examples of states where coverage looks really strong, states where maybe coverage is weaker? Sure. I mean, we, we highlighted the Arizona senior highway revenue bonds as having very strong coverage. And then at the low end of the scale, you know, we certainly have bonds. Again, uh, some, some are backed solely by motor, motor fuel taxes that not only have that feature of only having motor fuel tax revenue, but have low coverage. So that would include the Rhode Island motor fuels tax revenue bonds and the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission oil franchise tax subordinate lien bonds. Those two bonds happen to be the lowest rated in this universe. They are A2 rated bonds, therefore most obviously at risk in the event that gasoline tax revenue drops off dramatically. Okay, we talked about the considerable flexibility that states have in their revenue structures, the types of things that they can do to replace lost gas taxes, right? So most of the revenues that states use to pay these bonds now are directly related to roads and road usage, right? And some aren't. And the one that I think the most of as the lead analyst for Texas is that while Texas has highway revenue bonds that they pay primarily from gasoline taxes, over the last several years, the states added about $11 billion of state general sales tax and oil and gas severance tax to the state highway fund. And that's something that in the long run really will help the trend that we're talking about. So what about other things that states are thinking about doing? Well, as you note, states have a long history of supplementing their highway funds and, and the funds that generally support bonds of this type. And, and usually they've done it to accommodate bigger spending on capital needs, not necessarily just to support payment of debt service on bonds. I think one thing we won't see in the near term is additional increases to the, the gas taxes that states levy, which are typically on a cents per gallon basis. I think they're going to be diminishing returns to that strategy, and we have seen a number of states do that in recent years, but also it's going to seem to penalize those people who are still driving combustion engine cars in order to accommodate those like you who have electric vehicles and don't have to pay motor fuel taxes. So, so I don't expect to see that. Uh, and I should note that another thing states have done in recent years is add inflation indexing or a percentage of value uh, tax feature, which allows them to have their gas tax revenue sort of keep pace with the economy and with inflation. That's been very helpful. But looking ahead to things that they can and will do to the extent that consumption of gasoline and diesel declines, there's a range of things. So far, we've seen a few states put in place a sort of special registration fees that, that are applicable only to people who are driving EVs or hybrids. Those, those are fine in concept. They're fairly easy to implement, uh, politically speaking, but they don't generate a lot of bang for the buck. And also, they sort of run counter to government's efforts to encourage people to adopt EVs. So those are not necessarily a panacea. Another thing 
we've seen a little bit less of, but may see more and more is government saying, okay, we're, we have all these public charging stations. How about imposing a tax on people while they're charging? That's also something that you can do. But again, you're not capturing as much revenue because a lot of people like you will be charging their vehicles at home as you might like, you know, so, so, so it's only a partial solution. And also, again, you're potentially discouraging people from adopting EVs. Still another thing that uh, makes a lot of sense if you want to replicate the benefits of motor fuels taxes is imposing a road usage charge based on the vehicle miles traveled by the driver. And again, that, that's a very sensible uh, concept to the extent that you're getting people to pay for the roads as they use them to the extent that they use them. So there's sort of a fairness aspect to that that's appealing. On the other hand, the technology of implementing it can be difficult. And also people sometimes will raise questions about whether they want to share their location and who gets to track where they've been and all of that kind of stuff. So the privacy issues can arise. But I, I think the bottom line is states have many alternatives. They can allocate revenue from totally different sources, i.e. not related to transportation, or they can explore some of these newer methods as many states are doing, like vehicle miles traveled. Okay. Beyond the direct impacts on bonds backed by motor fuels taxes, are there any sort of broader ways that this change has on state credit quality itself? Well, the, the broader implication is that states will have to figure out how to replace the revenue they've traditionally gotten from motor fuels taxes in funding their capital budgets, which cover roads, bridges, tunnels, you know, transportation infrastructure, broadly speaking. And this has long been an important part of states' finances. You know, for decades, states have universally levied gasoline taxes. And now they're starting to see the prospect of those revenue sources going away. We don't envision it happening overnight, certainly, but I mean, I think states are beginning to plan for a time when they'll be getting much less motor fuel tax revenue or perhaps even zero motor fuel tax revenue. I mean, we, we anticipate that the transition will be somewhat gradual, but nevertheless, states will need to figure out new ways to pay for roads and bridges. Ted Hampton, thanks so much for joining us on this special episode of Moody's Talks. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.